0: Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. Let me make a really crazy statement. It was, it's from a quote I heard this week. I think somewhere from the past, C.S. Lewis said this. I'm not sure in what context, but he made the observation that a fish doesn't feel like it's wet. Just think about that for a minute. A fish doesn't often think about the fact that it's wet. Because the fish is just immersed in water. That's the environment that it knows. It's the environment that it lives in. It's the environment that it's used to. You see, the things that we become immersed in become second nature to us. We don't think about them often. It is just the way it is. And unless we step back or step out of the environment, we're not able to adequately assess And take stock of what has become common reality for us. And today's letter is to a church that the greatest threat that Jesus wants to address to them is the threat of assimilation with the culture that surrounded them. And as a fish doesn't realise or recognise or acknowledge often that it's wet, we often too don't think about the things that have become normalised for us because of the environment and the culture of which we're a part. And Jesus calls out some of those things to this church today And in doing so, I think he wants to speak some words to us as a church today. In in many ways, this is, I think, one of the most challenging and confronting letters. Every letter that Jesus writes to the church in Revelation isn't a letter of condemnation. Every letter is filled with words of hope. So even when Jesus addresses some things that are a little bit messy or messed up, it's not to heap guilt and shame on people. It's always to call them back to the place that he desired them to be. Jesus has great hope in his church And he has great hope in you. And so even as we're confronted with some challenging things, God's intention is never for us to live and cower in guilt and shame. Sometimes he wants to poke on some things in our life because his desire for us is to live a better life than the one that we might be currently experiencing. It's very true for the church that he writes to today in a place called Pergamum. And so today as we read this letter, I know some of us are going to be challenged with some fairly confronting things. And if you're visiting with us today, we are not uh, the church that likes to kind of heap guilt, shame, or fire brimstone on anyone. That is not our nature, and it won't be my nature today. But Jesus says some pretty straight things to his church. One of the things we always need to recognize when we read these letters to the church that Jesus writes is that Jesus constantly wants to bring our thoughts and our minds and our focus back to the fact that he has already won the victory. He doesn't write to churches that are large and influential in many senses. They're not churches that are the dominant voice in the cultures they find themselves. Often these churches are new, are growing, are insignificant in size compared to all the other institutions in their city or in their culture. They're overwhelmed by the threat of violence and persecution. They're overwhelmed by the other religions that tower over them, not just in size, but in architecture. See, the church had the permission, or the church felt very small in the context of the culture. But Jesus constantly in these letters reveals to his church something about him that's really important. doesn't matter what faces you, I've already had the victory over it. I'm already bigger than it. I'm already more powerful than it. And today we're going to see it because one of the revelations we have of Jesus is that the letter says, I'm the one with the sharp double-edged sword coming out my mouth. The church that we speak to today lived in a place where the rulers of the day ruled with the sword. But Jesus says, don't be scared by them. Lift your eyes to me, who already has the victory and already holds power over that that comes against you. So as we listen to this letter, I want you to carry two things in your heart. Jesus confronts things because he wants to bring us back to the place that he desires for us to be. And Jesus acknowledges our weakness by pointing us to his strength. They're two important filters that we need to read over every letter that Jesus writes to his church. So, to the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, Where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come soon to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. There's some really challenging pictures in here that... As we understand the context, we'll start to make sense of what Jesus is saying to his church. But the overarching thing that we need to understand was it wasn't easy being a Christian in Pergamum. It wasn't an easy road to be a Christ follower in the city of Pergamum. There are three great things that just hung over all the Christ followers. There was a spiritual oppression. There was a political oppression or a violent persecution. And there was the confrontation of the religious landscape in which they live. A few things that we need to know about Pergamon. Jesus himself says in his letter, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now we can take that literally in a supernatural sense, and we don't fully understand what Jesus is saying here, but there's a few physical things that are going on as well, which just add to this picture. See, Pergamum was a place of imperial, was an imperial center for the Roman Empire, and it was a place where the regional Roman governor sat. Pergamum was a city of power and influence. And we know that the Roman governor of the time was a brutal, violent dictator in the way that he inflicted the Roman rule of law. Pergamum was a place where capital punishment was the norm. And we already see that Jesus says, some of you remain faithful even when my faithful witness Antipas was killed in your city. We get a sense that Antipas, by standing firm in his faith, was put to death by the sword. You see, there was a lot that hung over the Christians in Pergamum. Not only was it an outpost of the Roman Empire, the very architecture of the city was imposing with its religious shrines and temples. One of the temples in Pergamum was was a a sanctuary to the god Asclepius. There you go, I'll get that right, Asclepius. And Asclepius was a god of healing. And and the image of him was of a man, the stone images they find in archaeology of him holding a staff wrapped in a serpent. Now, if you're familiar with the picture of the first time that the Satan, the accuser, appears in the biblical story, it's as a serpent in the garden in Genesis. And so Jesus says, I know where you live and where Satan has his throne. I think that has a supernatural reality, but it also has a physical reality in the seat of the Roman governor and of the temple and sanctuary worship of the day. So it wasn't easy being a Christian in Pergamon. But in the midst of all of this opposition, Jesus still praises many in his church. He says, I want to honour you for remaining true to my name despite all that has come against you. Yet out of this encouragement also comes a really strong rebuke. Jesus says this, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying there's some in your church, some in your community are being enticed by the culture. They're being assimilated into the culture and they're trying to take their Christian beliefs and put them side by side with practices that are normal in the everyday life of those that lived in Pergamum. Jesus does this by throwing them back to a story that we find in Numbers, and you can read it later, Numbers 22 to 24. And it's a little bit confusing because it's not till we get to Numbers 25 where we hear of how the Israelites were tempted into worshipping other gods and into sexual immorality in their pagan worship. It doesn't actually mention Balaam there, but Balaam was the prophet that had been engaged in trying to deceive the Israelites before that. And even though he stood strong in part, we get the sense from what Jesus writes and from the way the story unfolded that Balaam was actually uh, critical in actually leading the hearts of the Israelites astray and in encouraging them to assimilate into their culture. And in the time of Balaam, the Israelites were sucked into idol worship and sexual immorality. And Jesus says here, there are some that are buying into that narrative, that it's okay to be a follower of Christ and to engage with and accept the practices of the surrounding culture. And Jesus' challenge is a really significant one. And if there's one overarching theme, I reckon, in this book, it is this, do not conform. Do not conform. Conformity is a a really powerful thing in our life, isn't it? Conformity is a really powerful thing. We, We all conform to some level. Some of us wear clothes to conform to others because we don't want to stand out. I mean, just go and search 80s fashion and ask yourself the question of what would bring anyone to wear that? I mean, I think that sometimes with the get-up that my kids walk out in. And so I just think, well, should I just join them? Maybe I should cut a hole in my jeans, drip a little bit of kind of chlorine down the side and you know, make them a little bit tighter, but none of us want to see that, do we? And that probably won't help Wednesday night be positive for me. <laughs> But we all struggle with the challenge of conformity, and we conform for a number of different reasons. In the church in Pergamon, people conform to avoid persecution. I mean, you'd have to be aware of what happened to those that didn't conform. I mean, Jesus names it. Someone they all would have known that would have been part of their community, Antipas, stands strong for what he believes and finds himself dead because of it. They saw the first-hand consequences of disobeying the law of the land and the law of the current culture And so to avoid persecution, they chose to conform and assimilate with the culture. You know, for us in the church today, our threat is not violence, but maybe we conform because the threat against us is the threat of isolation or being left out or missing out or being discriminated against or being ridiculed. Whatever it is, conformity is a strong pressure. And so sometimes we take the easy route and suppress our Christian beliefs and values and outwardly embrace the values and practices of our culture as an attempt to avoid standing out or being singled out. You see, sometimes conformity is a protection mechanism because we don't want to stand out and be persecuted for what we actually believe. And some of you in your faith, the greatest challenge for you is you just, you just would rather be part of the group and not be known for who you are and so you don't make a big deal of it and you just kind of fade into the background. You're a Christian, but you're actually happy for nobody to know that you're a Christian. Because it's just easier for you. And sometimes we have conformed to avoid persecution. Sometimes we just have a deep desire to be accepted. And I want to say to the young people here, one of the greatest pressures on your life is the desire to be accepted. I mean, all of us want to be loved and valued and accepted. And sometimes we can choose behaviours that even though they go against the fabric of what we know and what we believe and what we think is good and healthy for us, we go with them because we just want to be accepted by the crowd. Sometimes we conform because we just want to fit in. Sometimes we conform because we want to protect ourselves and our future. And I reckon there's a day coming for the church where this is going to be a stronger challenge for us. I know of people, I've had conversations with people that have had people of influence in their life tell them that if they admit to being a follower of Christ in their industry, it's going to hamper their future prospects and progression. I know people that have been told if they want any help or hope in making it, they should just keep quiet about their church-going activities and their faith in Christ. You see, some of us feel the pressure to conform to society's patterns as a defense mechanism to protect ourselves and to protect our future. Conformity is a powerful thing in our life. I want to suggest there's one more, and maybe today this is the most strong one. And it's that sometimes we conform because we don't know any different. We've become so immersed in our culture as a fish doesn't know that it's wet. We too aren't even aware that some of our behaviours have drifted so far from God's intention. Because as we look at the world around us and as we read the newspapers, we don't read newspapers anymore, as we read Facebook, as we watch our Netflix series... As we have conversations in the tea room, that which has become norm has become the norm for us. And sometimes our conformity and assimilation hasn't come through conscious choice. It's just come from ignorance and embracing that which we know no different. We now live in a generation. And young people and parents of young people, you're growing up in a generation now where Christian belief and thought and practice is very much in the minority. And if we don't take a step back and assess our environment and look at our behaviours and the world in which we live, we could very easily be sucked along in the tide of culture, not even knowing that the choices we're making in living our life aren't in unison with God's hope and intention and purposes for us. And two of the things that Jesus addresses in the church in Pergamum are just as significant in our culture. He says to them, some of you, He actually praises a large chunk of the church, but he says there's some of you that are actually bought into some other teachings. You know, there's other people that are coming into the church and their message is this. You can follow Christ, go for it. It's good, Jesus was a good man. He was a good man, he's got some good things for you, but you don't have to be exclusive in that. There's some other things that this world offers that you can enjoy. And that was the teaching that was coming into the church. You can engage in all kinds of weird and wonderful practices and acts. It doesn't have to be in opposition to your faith. It can sit alongside it. And so there was this threat of assimilation. And the two things that Jesus calls out in his church is this, idolatry. In other words, choosing to worship other gods. We don't think about idolatry a lot in our day because we don't have a whole bunch of ancient temples in a religious sense that just surround us. I mean, Pergamum, the whole geographic centre and the whole way that the city was set up, everywhere you looked, there were shrines and temples and places that demanded your worship of other deities. But idolatry in our time and in our culture looks very different. But idolatry is whatever we actually make the ultimate thing in our life that we bow our knee to and give all of our time, our attention, our devotion and our love. And so for some of us, Our idolatry is found in success. For some of us, it is found in possessions. For some of us, it's found in a relationship. Sometimes we can take good things and make them, as Tim Keller says, ultimate things. And it's the making of a good thing, an ultimate thing in your life that actually turns it into an idol in your life. And Jesus addresses idolatry in the church. He says, some of you are starting to allow your heart to worship other things. But more than that, he says, some of you are actually getting sucked into the practices of the surrounding culture, and he calls out sexual immorality. In the ancient world and in Pergamon, many religious practices and rituals and festivals and the worship of other gods had kind of all weird and wonderful sexual practices attached to them. Many of the festivals and the way that people worshipped and called out the fertility gods, for instance, involved all kind of messed up stuff that happened in the temple courts. And as the church of Jesus was observing it, some were being sucked in to this lifestyle and this practice. You know, we've got to be really careful today that we don't think that the challenges we have in a sexualized culture are brand new. They've existed through all time. You've just got to go look at ancient archaeology and transcripts and look at the things that were scratched on walls and painted on walls and look at ancient temple worship to realize that sexual temptation and sin is a powerful force that's existed for all times has been one of the tools of the enemy to actually suck God's people away from him and in Pergamum the teaching that many were buying into was this you can follow Jesus but still enjoy all the sexual offerings that culture has for you and I'd say the same is true in our culture and I want to talk about that for a couple of minutes today and for some of you this is the first time you've probably been made feel awkward all of my kids are in kids ministry so that's all right they won't feel awkward I'll just make them listen to the podcast later But we live in a time where sexual practice, expectation and norms are misaligned with God's heart and intention for his people. Let me say that again. We live in a time and a culture where sexual practices, expectations and norms are misaligned with God's heart and intention for his people. Yet often in the church, and this is a rebuke on me, we haven't always helped people to understand what a godly view of sexual discipleship actually is. So let me take a few minutes to talk about that this morning. And we live in a culture where the narrative is this. If it feels good, it's okay. In other words, your feelings become the barometer of what is right and wrong. Now, we don't want to interrogate that because if we actually think in that, we know that there's some people that have misjudged feelings and go into areas that we all know are wrong. But we like for ourselves to think that if it feels good, it's got to be okay. We live in a culture that says as long as everyone consents, it's okay. We live in a culture that says as long as no one gets hurt, go for it. Enjoy yourself. We live in a culture that says that sex stands alone outside of commitment, relationship, love, value, honour, intimacy, etc. These things don't matter. We live in a culture where sex is idolised, celebrated and in our faces every day. And God is an old-fashioned fun suppressor on the wrong side of history. We live in a sex-saturated culture that invites us to engage in its practices. The, the, The problem is, I don't know if we've been really great in discipling the next generation. And so I think many of our young people step into this culture and accept what is normal is what is normal in the church as well. Because we haven't actually given them a better picture of what God has intended for their life. I don't know, but here's a challenge to parents. Have have you ever sat down and had that awkward conversation with your kids about what a godly sexual ethic looks like and how that outworks in practices as they start to find their way in relationships? It might be the most awkward conversation you might have, and I've got some funny stories about how that's gone for us that I can't tell from this stage. But I want to challenge your Parents. If you don't talk to your kids about this, they'll get their education through Netflix and through other 13 and 14 year olds in the schoolyard at school. We cannot neglect the conversation and I wonder if many of us haven't had the conversation because we don't actually know how to have the conversation and put a good spin on it. Because God's view of sex is this. Sex is good, but somewhere we've actually lost sight of that. And any time we associate faith and sex, it's turned into some kind of ancient suppression that isn't good for us and doesn't allow us to flourish as humanity. But the Bible always teaches that God's ultimate intention for every one of us is to flourish and to live life. What does the Bible say? To the full. And this comes in the way we experience and we practice sex as well. See, the Bible tells us that sex experienced in the right context is fulfilling, is healing, is pleasurable, and most importantly, it finds a way of keeping God's two most important commands, honoring God and honoring others. We live in a culture that says sex is actually about how it makes you feel. And it doesn't matter if there's collateral as long as the other person in that moment consents and it's all right with them. We don't think of the ongoing consequences. I say to my kids, I want you to treat every person. We haven't had a lot of relationships yet, so I'm not claiming myself to be the expert. But I've said to my boys, I want you to treat every girl that comes into your life like they're someone else's wife. One day they might be your wife and you'll get there and you'll have your heads held high. But if there's someone else's wife, you'll be able to look that bloke in the eye. See, we don't think about how this plays out for others. We just think about what feels good for us. But the Bible tells us that sex is good and experienced in the right context can be fulfilling, healing, pleasurable and honouring of both others and God. And so God's ideal is this, that sex should be kept sacred for marriage. That is the biblical sexual ethic, that sex has a good and proper context and it's in the context of marriage. And if we read further into the book of Revelation, it actually uh, marriage is actually a metaphor that Jesus uses to talk about heaven and earth and God and his church, this faithful, committed relationship. And it's the metaphor that Jesus uses. That is God's view and that is the biblical sexual ethic. But we turn on the TV, we open the magazines, we listen to the radio, we look at billboards and everything screams to us a completely different message. So young people, let me say it. And if your parents want to agree, they might have the conversation at home with you in the car or they can unpack everything I said for you in a different way. But young people, God's desire for you is that sex should be kept sacred for your marriage. Because it's here that it can be experienced in the fullness of how God intended it, not just as an outlet of an uncontrollable physical urge, but as a place of joy, sacred intimacy, and unashamed celebration. If you've ever been given a message that God thinks sex is bad, you've been given the wrong message. God just has a context in which it can be celebrated and enjoyed that won't bring harm to you and won't bring harm to others. The problem that we have always when we have this conversation, is, if we go back to the book of Genesis, what happened in the Garden of Eden, the serpent came, came up to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say that? God really say you shouldn't eat that fruit? Like when you think about it, what happens if you touch the fruit? The fruit's not going to hurt you. God doesn't know what he's on about. You should just eat the fruit and find out that God's just trying to suppress something in you. And it's the same message that's constantly whispering in our ear through the culture. Did God really say that? Does God really know what he's talking about? Has God really been enlightened to what life is like these days? And you're going to be challenged with the same question. Did God really say that that's what sex should be and how it should be experienced? Did God really say that? Is he really trying to rob you of fun and pleasure? Is he just trying to suppress you expressing who you really are? People don't get hurt. You're missing out. This is normal human behavior. This is what you do when the urge comes on. Nothing bad can happen. There's a lie that the enemy will keep whispering in your ear. Jesus calls it out in his church, not to heap guilt and shame. And, and I don't speak this today to heap guilt and shame on anyone. Because any, and many of us have done our own journey in this. But Jesus doesn't do it just to go, there, I've told you, sucked in, you dirty, rotten sinner. He says, I actually want to call you back. There's always a way back with Jesus. There's always an opportunity to actually restore that that has been broken and to receive his healing and his wholeness. And he says to his church, some of you have been sucked in by the narrative of culture and it's not good for you. So what I want you to do before it's too late is come back to me, repent and come back. There's an opportunity for you to turn this around. It's actually going to be painful because you're going to have to put a stop to some of the things that you're doing and you're going to have to change your mindset and you're going to have to have some tough conversations. But it's never too late with Jesus. He doesn't speak challenge over us to make us feel ashamed. He speaks challenge over us because his desire for you is to live whole, healthy and free. And today, to any of us that carry guilt or shame in this area, Jesus' words are simple. Repent. Repent really means to take a 180 degree turn. I'm going to stop walking that direction and I'm going to start walking a different direction. I'm going to stop walking into the things of culture and I'm going to start walking into the things of God. We we probably, in our time, Church practice have lost some of the art that you find in some other church liturgies of regular confession and repentance. But today I'm going to give us a chance to do that for those that want to kneel before God and tell him they're sorry and invite him to just wash them clean with his grace and his love. But let me ask a question and let me get practical for a few minutes. How do we resist conformity? How do we resist cultural Assimilation. One of the most attractive pictures to me in the scripture is spoken both of Jesus and of the early church where it says that they grew in favour with both God and man. This is not becoming awkward in the midst of our culture. It's not becoming um, unsociable. It's not becoming unliked. It's just not compromising the things that matter to us and that matter to God as we immerse ourselves in our culture. So how do we resist conformity? Number one, renew your mind what we fill our mind with becomes our norm. And if the only narrative you've got around wealth and possessions and sex and relationships and marriage and family and how to run your business, a podcast you listen to and articles you read and Netflix drama series, they will become the norm for you in how you behave. But the Bible says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, what are you feeding yourself with? We can't ignore the things that come into our lives, but what are we feeding on? What regular practices do you have in place that are feeding yourself with God's word and God's reality? Because if you don't have them, they'll never become the norm for you. And you'll step into things completely ignorantly, not knowing that God has a better purpose for your life than that. So find your way of filling your mind with the things of God. I'm not someone that tells people to be a great Christian. You better read the Bible like you're ticking a box. And if you tick the box, you're a good person. But read it to feed yourself. So find your way of doing it. Some of you love getting up early in the morning and taking some time in quiet devotion with a cup of coffee and the word. And I just love ignoring my alarm at 6.30 in the morning for as long as I possibly can. I don't know why snooze goes for nine minutes. She went for 39 minutes, but I just hit it four times. That doesn't work for me. I've got to find other spaces. I've got some podcasts I listen to. A lot of the podcasts I listen to are mindless football chat because I just need to clear my mind. But other days, it's just listen to some stuff that feeds me and fuels me. Some days, the music I listen to the radio broadcasts I listen to, the things that I read, what are you filling your mind with? Because what we fill our mind with will ultimately become the norm for us. Some of us don't know what Jesus wants for us because we've never been discipled by him. And we live in a day and an age where there are more resources available for you to fill your mind with the things of God that the excuses have really run out. So what are you doing to allow God's word and God's way to become the norm in your life? You see, social media has gotten a hold of this. They track what you read and they just keep feeding it to you. So if you believe that the earth is a hexagon, suddenly your newsfeed is going to be filled with each and every article written by anyone on planet earth that actually agrees that the earth too is a hexagon and before long you actually think that that is what the whole world thinks and that you're just surrounded by a bunch of gooses that actually think the world is round. You see, we can feel our life And fill our mind with things that become normalised for us because that is all we take in. But God invites us to renew our mind and therefore have our practices aligned to the things of God because we fill our mind with the things that tell us of his way and his intention for us. So renew your mind. What else can we do? Secondly, and I harp on about this one a lot. You'd think that it matters to me. But gather with God's people. Gather with God's people. See, in the church, we we walk this tension. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, I just want to talk to you about a tension you're going to have to manage. The part of being a Jesus follower is Jesus calls you to actually be his salt and his light in the world. In other words, don't spend your whole life living in a Christian ghetto where everything you do and listen to and speak to and experience is in a bubble over there. God actually calls you to be people of mission. Tell them the good news of Jesus to a broken, hurting will. But sometimes we lose the balance. I, 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 I have people want to argue with me, you don't have to be a, in church to be a Christian, and that is a completely true statement. But I actually, you read the scripture, and there is no way you can ever build an ethic in the scripture that says meeting regularly with God's people, to learn, to grow, to pray, to experience life together, isn't part of God's intention for you. So, if it's not in a gathered church experience like this, what's it look like for you? Is it a small group? Is it a gathering of people around your table? I don't know what it looks like, but if you actually want to conform yourself to the ways of God, you've got to actually immerse yourself with God's people. The church is meant to be a place where we come to be fueled up so that we can be people of mission in the world. Make this a regular practice. Next week, you're going to get a letter that I've written to our church. All of the campus pastors have written a letter to their campuses and they'll be available for you next week. Make sure you're here to get that. But one of the things I end with is COVID's actually taken out a lot of the regular practice for people in gathering. I want to call us back to the place where it's time to get that back as a priority in our life. Not as the thing you do when the five other better options fall off and it's a wet day and you need to get the kids out of the home, but actually as God's gift to you to actually help you grow and be whole and know the life that he's called you to. So being with God's people really matters. Make it part of your practice. If you don't like this group of God's people, find somewhere where it works. Find somewhere where you can grow and learn and become all that God intended you to do. Two more. I'm going to get the band up. They helped me bring the two into land really quick. Jesus says at the end of his letter, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna and I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. What is Jesus saying? There's a couple of really funny pictures here, but Jesus is speaking to a church that feels overwhelmed by the threat of the culture in which they're a part. And so Jesus says this, if you stay true to me, To the one who is victorious, I will actually give you the resource of heaven. I will actually feed you and sustain you and resource you. And there is something available to us as believers that have God's spirit as a mark within us that he wants to fill us and overwhelm us with his Holy Spirit so that we continue to live in the tension of a culture that is pushing God's people further and further to the edge. But in the midst of that, Jesus says, don't worry about that because it doesn't matter who's holding the sword. I'm the one that holds a double-edged sharpened sword and they are nothing to me. You are on the side of the victor. So don't give in because he wants to resource you with the resource of heaven to walk through any challenge that comes your way, to overcome any obstacle in your path, to persist when everything else calls for you to give up. So be filled with the Holy Spirit to walk into all that God has for you. And finally, look to God's good future. There's a little picture here where God says, Jesus says, I will give you a white stone with your name on it. Now, if you read that and you have no context, you go, that's a bit odd. I can't wait to get my white stone with the name on it that no one else knows. But in Pergamum, one of the ways that they invited people to the sacred feasts and assemblies and worship practices in the other religions was you would give someone a stone with their name written on it. It was your ticket to the feast. And so the people that heard this knew that One of the ways you you actually became someone, you found significance was to get your ticket to these feasts. You're given a stone with your name on it. And the Christians had to be sitting there going, man, we just so hard in the face of culture. But Jesus says, hold tight. I've got a stone for you and it's a white stone. It's pure, it's unblemished. And it's got a name on it that no one can take from you. And it's an invitation to my feast." Me, not the one that holds a sword. Me, that holds the double-edged, sharpened sword. The one that's already victorious over all the powers and authorities, all the cultural nuances and ideals that come against you. But if you hold on and if you're victorious, you will one day be given a stone with a name on it that is your invitation to God's good kingdom feast. Jesus wants to say to his church, hold on hold on, what I have for you is way better than anything you experience right now. You know, sometimes we have to look beyond this moment to God's good future for us. It's the thing that will help us persist when it gets hard. It's the thing that will call us to sacrifice. It's the thing that will call us to give up some of the pleasures of this life because we know that what God has promised and what God has in store is way better than any offering this earth or our culture has to give. But we aren't people that... One of the things that we experience in our culture is we don't live in a culture that understands delayed gratification. We want what we want and we want it now. But Jesus says, hold on, hold fast. One day, if you hold on, what you'll get to experience is far better and richer and more joyful. It's a place of greater peace, a greater wholeness, of greater healing. Greater intimacy, a greater experience than anything this world can have to offer. And those that hold on, one day you'll get your invitation. And you'll walk in with that stone that is white with your name on it. And you'll get to experience the fullness of all God has for you. Sometimes we've got to look beyond this moment and the offerings of this moment to God's good future to find our hope in all that He has for us. Jesus says, if you're victorious, I'm going to give you a pure white stone as your invitation to my feast. Wow, the church in Pergamum probably heard the letter that Jesus wrote and had some serious work to do. But I reckon there's a challenge for us here today in this. I'm going to ask us to all stand this morning. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. Actually, I'm going to get a case. Can we sing that revival song you sang before? I think there's some lyrics in it that are really meaningful for us in this moment. What you've done before, do it again. But I I want to give you an invitation today. Two things in response to the message this morning. As I said earlier, we've lost what I think should be a regular part of Christian worship and practice, which is confession and Repentance. And I think this morning, some of us just need to come before God. We don't need to tell the world what's going on, but we just need to humbly come before God and say, God, I've actually got some stuff in my life right now that's misaligned. I need to own it. I need to acknowledge it. And I need to repent of it. And I'm actually going to choose in this moment to turn away from that and to walk towards you. That's what repentance is. It's choosing to turn away from the narrative of the world and realign yourself with the narrative of God. And you might need some support in that. You might need some people to walk alongside you. You might need to actually go and get some professional support, because some of your practice and behavior has been born out of just some really deep hurt and trauma in your own life. But the starting point is always just to say to God, "God, today I just acknowledge my brokenness. I just want to ask for your forgiveness." And you know what the Bible says? God is so good, so gracious. He chooses to forgive us. He wipes the slate clean and gives us a fresh start and we don't have to walk forward in guilt and shame. But it's a really important thing that we build into our practice of normal Christian behaviour, the practice of confession and repentance. So I want to give you something to do and no one's looking at anyone else because you, you might just have something really random going on for you that you just know is misaligned with God's heart and will for you and you just need to confess that today. But if you want to do that... You might just want to do something that's in the church's history been a symbol of confession. It's just to kneel. I'm not going to ask you to come out to do it. I just want you to do where you are. And it, maybe you can't kneel physically. Maybe you just want to sit where you are. God will know your heart in that. But maybe you just want to kneel where you are. And as the band sings, just say, okay, God, I'm going to name it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to ask your forgiveness for it. And I'm going to ask you to resource me to move forward. So, today maybe the most powerful thing that God has for you is a moment of confession and repentance. Secondly, God says that for those that are victorious, He's going to give them hidden manna. In other words, there's a re- heavenly resource that's available to you that God just wants to continue to give to you, to continue to confront the things that He calls you to do with confidence, with hope, with power. And so, as we sing today, if you're just in a Moment of complete emptiness and saying, God, would you just fill me with the resources of heaven? We're just going to get some of our team today <coughs> just available to come. And if it's all right, we'll ask your permission just to lay a hand on your shoulder and just ask that Jesus would just fill you with his Holy Spirit, just the overflowing, that the things of God would just pour out of your very being, that he would resource you with the power of heaven into your ordinary everydayness so that you may continue to resist the challenges of the culture in which you live but may continue to walk forward in power and in mission proclaiming the good news of jesus to a broken and hurting world so today maybe you need to get on your knees maybe today you need to come forward and let us just pray god's spirit to fill you to overflowing whatever the response you need to make this morning i encourage you to do it to have the courage and the confidence to do it let's sing together and if you need to move why don't you move right now we hope you've been blessed by this message